is Stigma, where we talk with leaders from many industries about how mental health and addiction have impacted their lives. Many people suffer silently from mental illness, addiction, depression, anxiety, and trauma. They never seek help because of stigma. In this podcast, host Stephen Hayes and his guests share their stories of recovery in order to encourage others to do the same. Here's Stephen. So welcome back to the Stigma Podcast. Today, we have uh, Chantel Garrett with us. Chantel is the founder and executive director of Strong 365, which is a nonprofit that connects young people to evidence-based mental health treatment through online resources and support hubs in partnership with large health systems. Uh, Chantel has shared this in her bio on the website, but just so you're aware, she has a brother who lives with schizophrenia, and that has driven a lot of her passion to help facilitate changes in the way we view brain health and, and how we access care. She's also an independent marketing strategy consultant and has, has done that for, for many years. She puts a lot of passion uh, behind her efforts in mental health and wellness. And some of this you can see in her efforts to teach yoga and mindfulness uh, in underprivileged, underserved communities. And uh, she has a degree in applied economics from UCSF. She lives in the Bay Area, uh, has a husband, two daughters, one dog, five chickens, which we will have to get into in a little bit. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a bunch of ways you can get in touch with her and Strong365. I will link all of those in the show notes. But without further ado, uh, thank you for coming on. Really great to have you. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this chat. I've been looking forward to it for some time. And I was just kind of curious, you know, Strong 365 has a really interesting and unique mission. And I think it'd be great to hear about it in, in your words. And maybe a good place to start is, you know, wh where did you get the idea for it? And and sort of at a high level, what, what do you guys focus on? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so happy to share. So as you mentioned in the intro, um, the the idea really stemmed from a personal experience. Um, and it was really that of my, my brother. So he was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was 20 years old. For context, he's now 40. So it's, it's really been this long and at times a, a really treacherous road through recovery for him. And I'm, I'm really grateful that he's in a much better place now and, and doing really well. But it took maybe 15 of those years for him to really find effective care, uh, quality care in his community that he could easily access and pay for. And that for, for myself and my family was just really mind blowing. If you think about the disparity between the experiences that we have uh, with our health in general, and then the experiences that we, we have and even myself have had with anxiety or stress or feeling burned out with work, trying to sort of seek help and find really quality help that you can afford uh, is really, really challenging. And so for a very long time, as I was working in the corporate sector, primarily in marketing and in financial services, it, it, this, this huge gap, um, particularly for young people experiencing mental health issues and experiences that were outside of the realm of things that we would typically talk about. That to me is has been a very interesting opportunity and problem set. And um, back in 2014, uh, I had stepped away from my corporate career at that time, kind of went on sabbatical. My family and I not the chickens at that time, but the rest of us went to Costa Rica for a summer um, and really kind of checked out for a little while for three months to really reset and rethink about you know, uh, what we wanted our lives to look like, both as a family and also my husband and I kind of 
reshaped our careers at that time. Um, and so for me, I thought a lot about this problem. How can uh, you know 100,000 young people in the United States who are going to experience a first episode of psychosis get the help they need at the right time. At that time, there was research uh, that was coming out of Australia and the UK and also just a long history of of research that have come out of other countries with universal healthcare who have had models for care uh, or models of care for early psychosis um, that showed incredible results when it came to quality of life, things like school dropout, unemployment, homelessness, suicide, staying in care, staying out of the hospital. Um, People who were really able to, even with a psychotic disorder, get help very early and be able to get back into their lives. And so for me, it sort of, I learned about all of this while on sabbatical. I got really excited and I really wanted to um, shift my career to, to really do something about it. So that was the impetus of Strong 365. It was to utilize my background in marketing to promote a new model of care that had at that time just come to the United States. Today, this is known as coordinated specialty care. And the United States, backed by the National Institute of Health, ended up doing a pretty large demonstration, uh, a study in the United States that had 20-something sites. And they basically found all of the the known facts that had been found over the prior 25 years or so uh, outside of the United States, which is that young people do better. They do so much better if they're able to get care earlier. Uh, In 2014, I started Strong 365, essentially to try to shorten the pathway to care for young people facing a first episode of psychosis. And we do that in a a multitude of ways, but primarily it is online. And we use digital channels to connect with teens and young adults about what psychosis is, what those experiences are. Uh, We connect them to good, solid information online, as well as you know, sort of try to humanize the story, reduce stigma so that uh, people are more likely to seek help. And then we also provide a directory of, of, of care to these specialized coordinated specialty care centers across the United States. Uh, today, there are about 300 of those programs. Back in uh, 2014, just for context, there were about 50. So it's really grown quite a bit. Uh, with the support of the the federal government. We now have research that is underway with academic partners, and we're testing the use of digital media to connect with young people and hopefully shorten that pathway to care. So the average young person who experiences psychosis for the first time, how do they the ones who do get help, how do they find it and get to it? And, you know, is it the, is it the person themselves that's finding the help or is it the love, a loved one? What, what does that kind of look like when someone yeah. experiences this for the first time and then ends up in some sort of care? Yeah, well, this is, this is the big opportunity here. So today in the United States, the last study that was done here in the, in the U.S., looking at the time that it takes someone from that the first time that they would sort of meet criteria for a first epi- episode of psychosis until the time that they received care is well over a year, about a year and three months in the United States. The World Health Organization wants that to be no more than three weeks. And so the, that time to care is the biggest lever in long-term health outcomes for young people with early psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. So that's the nut we're trying to crack. Today, the the channels that people come through are typically not on behalf of themselves. So it's not 
young people calling or walking into these clinics. It's typically a parent. Sometimes another person in that person's life has helped them, but usually there's an adult who's helping that person come through to care. And the number one refer to these programs, unfortunately, today in the United States is inpatient units. So today we're really failing still. It's wonderful that we have these incredible clinics that are, you know, wrap around care for people that provide really holistic support for the family and for the young person. However, the way that they're getting there is such that they've already gone through a really traumatic event. They've had a crisis. They've landed in the ER most of the time and have now had an inpatient stay at a psychiatric hospital. Our goal at Strong 365 is to see that that pathway completely changes such that, a, say, you know, a 17-year-old, maybe like my brother, starts to hear voices or starts to hear sounds or different things when he's listening to his music and he gets curious about what that is and he searches on his phone, you know, hearing things when I'm listening to music. Well, then a search result comes up for Strong 365 and we're able to quickly not only explain what that could potentially be, but offer an online screener so that that person can understand their risk profile and then quickly uh, connect with either a peer, so someone like them who has gone through the experience, or an online therapist who can help further assess and get that person to the right place. So this one, this gap uh, between the, the time to care, which is about a, a little over a year right now, and you know the goal is three weeks, what has to happen there? It seems like that's probably a function of stigma, access, cost. There's probably a whole slew of things we have to do to get that number down to three weeks. You're absolutely right. So in, in the most recent work that we've been doing, we're piloting a project in New York State where we're partnering with 23 clinics across the state of New York, all coordinated specialty care. They all specialize in working with teens and young adults with first episode psychosis. Most of them are seeing this you know, year or so delay to treatment, and most of them are seeing people come through inpatient units. So this is really the big question that we're asking ourselves. What role can digital media play in meeting someone, a young person, directly where they are at the right time with the right information and support. Now, exactly what that's going to look like, we don't know yet. I'm really excited to maybe come back in a year and talk about what we learned. But we're we're kind of we're 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 certainly informed by a bunch of user research that we've done, both with teens and young adults who live with schizophrenia or have had psycho- psychotic uh, episodes and have been through treatment, as well as parents. Uh, and we do think that it, there is the potential for parents and teachers and administrators and coaches and le- faith leaders, people in the community who surround themselves with young people to have a greater awareness about what early psychosis looks like um, so that we can help young people seek this care. So we think that it's we're, do, we're taking a dual approach. It's just as important to reach and interact with a young person in those early stages as it is to interact with the people who, who they surround themselves with and try to really improve the awareness and uh, help, help that parent teacher know how to take action. And does this require you guys to get huge? Does it require there to be more of you out there? What 
is the the need and i guess where i'm going with it is is it a capital need is it a entrepreneur need is it a government need who who needs to step up here and and sort of help move the needle yeah well there there are definitely multiple barriers that are are fairly significant you know if we just think about for the time being a pilot within the state of new york uh, has you know is is now being sort of facilitated by an NIMH research grant. Really, really grateful to be able to do this work. We've been wanting to do this work for a few years. So if I put my kind of corporate hat on, and I've, I've worked in technology sector as well, we, we move at a snail's pace in this work. And it's incredibly frustrating at times, but I am grateful to, be, to begin to dive in. I do think now that we, we have the tools and resources we need to uh, ask these types of questions and really get some incredibly meaty findings I do think that it's just incredibly slow. So this is a three-year grant. You know, it'll be a couple of years until we have something written and in the literature that sort of propels propels us forward. In the meantime, though, I definitely have an entrepreneurial spirit myself. And, you know, we will be taking real-time findings and um, connecting with, you know, potential partners, potentially entrepreneurs, other nonprofits, really whatever it takes. So we, we, we have yet to have those initial set of findings. But I do think if you think about how to scale something like this, I think of it as a national triage center, online triage center for first episode psychosis. That doesn't exist today. We're going to test it out in New York and see what happens. But in order to bring it national, there, there are a number of barriers, like I said. One, you know, you hit on this earlier, cost is a big deal. Because we don't have insurance parity when it comes to mental health care, meaning they aren't reimbursing for the full range of mental health care services, even within the context of coordinated specialty care for early psychosis, you have families that are just written out of this who will not be able to access. This is this kind of model of care that has an evidence behind it, you know, that should be scaled across an entire system is, is really, really difficult to do. In, in a country without universal, like some kind of unified system. And that's what, what's really enabled Australia and the UK. Some, some countries in Asia have done it. Other countries in, in Europe, Finland, and so on and so forth. You know, they have nationwide systems that treat young people with coordinated specialty care. It's very, very difficult to do here. Um, another issue that companies, even technology companies run into is credentialing and licensing you know, which as you know, all happens at kind of the state-based level, it makes it hard when I think about scale, even sort of triaging or assessing people in a centralized way, which would be very efficient, you know, to, to do. And I think really useful from, from what we've learned from user research, you know, there are a lot of hoops that you kind of have to jump through and it makes it, it certainly makes it difficult to scale. And then of course, capital, right? There's implementation, there's maintenance costs, you know, that would be somewhat significant at the same time. I think there it's hugely beneficial to think about a centralized, you know, digital service that does this rather than the really fragmented way that it happens today, which is that an inpatient unit at a hospital, you know, looks up in their health, you know, health record system or resources system, you know, who to call and who to connect. And it's just, it's a very manual process today that's far too late for, for young people. And I just, we can do so much better, I think, by utilizing technology. You mentioned that you, you partner with people uh, or entities. Who, who are the kind of folks that you partner with or that you'd want to partner with? 
So today, a good example today is Mental Health America. We have a, a partnership with them. So they do, you know, they're one of the sort of large uh, mental health advocacy organizations. Um, and they, one of the things they do is mental health screening on their website. And so they have a uh, psychosis risk screener on their website. They see pretty significant traffic through that, which is great. But they came to us and said, you know what, we, uh, we really struggle with where we leave people. We screen them and they, you know, say 30% of people come through with, hey, this is worth talking to someone about. And then we sort of leave them there. Because this is a little bit more of a specialized area, psychosis, there's usually a limit to sort of what these larger organizations can provide in terms of routing people to that next step. So it's much, we need more than just advocacy, just stigma reduction, which really, really important, both of those things, more than just screening. We then, we need, um, I think where Strong 365 can play a role is really helping bring people all the way through um, to care, to, to, to an actual high quality you know, care. And so they essentially put us and our, our treatment tracker, we have a, a map and a listing of all of the 300 or so uh, coordinated specialty care centers across the United States. They kind of place us there as the next step for people, um, which is, is really useful. Uh, and so we see people come through, they contact us, they, we, we do interact with young people as well as their families to, to ultimately make that connection sometimes. Um, but a lot of a lot of it happened seamlessly through that flow through Mental Health America into Strong 365. So that's a good example. Are there health systems? Are there any like uh, traditional providers that that you guys work with? So in in our pilot in in the state of New York, we're working with um, two systems. We're working with uh, Northwell Health, which is a large healthcare provider, as as well as a, a network of early psychosis programs or clinics called On Track New York. And so, um, yes, we're embedded in partnership, working working with that those teams. So we've d- just uh, trained those teams on the digital uh, outreach campaign that we'll be launching in April, so that they're aware and know how to kind of track people coming through, so that we can understand what their trajectory has been and how potentially how how the digital outreach changes that trajectory. What we hope to find is that people are showing up earlier in, in their kind of cycle of, of early psychosis. We hope that they're showing up earlier and we hope that they're showing up prior to a hospitalization. Yeah, that's interesting. Those partnerships are, are fascinating. I think that'll grow, right? Like as you guys expand yeah. outside of the pilot and, and move into other locations, you'll probably end up partnering with a lot of health systems, right? Uh, that's the hope. Absolutely. Um, we are, you know, we've been in conversation with, you know, teams and, and systems in California. I think that would be the next obvious step for us. We're based in California. Our parent organization, One Mind, is based in California and has been really embedded in growing the early psychosis treatment programs and their availability in the state of New or state of California. So I think that'll be a, the next step for us for sure. And then, you know, we'll sort of go from there. And how are you guys funded? I mean, I know you're a nonprofit. We said that earlier, but yeah. you know, do you do you have is it grant money? Is it is it large donations from from individual from wealthy individuals? Are you always fundraising? You know, what does your mm-hmm. your need look like on, on, on that front? Yeah, so we it's all of the above, um, and it's definitely a mix. But we're primarily funded through family foundations, 
as well as the NIH research grant that I that I mentioned. And at this point, you know, we are the team is relatively small and nimble. And at this moment, we have I feel like we have now the opportunity to really execute and implement a lot of these ideas. Um, for the first few years, fundraising was a huge frustration of mine and trying to figure it out as, as a founder <laughs> in the nonprofit space who was used to working in the for-profit space, you know, such a different model. Um, it took some time for me to figure out how to do that. And um, over time through developing relationships, um, developing a scientific advisory board, uh, who've been really supportive and excited, exciting, um, excited to to jump in and partner and do do some of the research with me. That's ultimately how it how it kind of progressed. There will be a point in the next year or so where, where I will poke my head up again and probably do another round of of fundraising. Uh, for the time being, we're all really focused on implementation right now, which feels really good. That's great. <laughs> I, I bet that does feel good. I- it really does. <laughs> What about your team? How did you, how big is your team and how did you build it? You know, I guess I'm really, what I'm really trying to get at here is what's it like to start a nonprofit mm-hmm. in this space? And, you know, we just talked about funding, uh, but but what about building a team? How did you find people to help you yeah. uh, for this cause? Um, it, one of the first things that I did was um, begin to reach out to some of the thought leaders in the space and develop uh, the the scientific advisory board, as I just mentioned, and that was really critical, just to to have people at the forefront of psychosis research and treatment. You know, people who were equally passionate about it, and also understood and sort of live and breathe in the in the science of it much more than I do as a non scientist. So that was really helpful, just to begin to shape the strategy and and our value proposition, what we wanted to do. At the same time, pretty much a, a synchronous to that, I began reaching out to young people and developed a youth leadership board, which is now, I don't know, about 15, 16 uh, people uh, under the age of 30. Uh, there's a wide range in there, including teens, but all of them have a personal experience with psychosis. And I would say that that was probably the most pivotal and in informing piece of of the initial development of of the nonprofit because I myself even though I am a sister right to someone who has had this experience it is fundamentally different it is fundamentally different to have lived oftentimes the trauma the um the stigma the you know self perceived stigma as well as external stigma these are things that you know I really needed to steep myself in and work hand in hand with with people who have had this experience. So that's been really critical. Um, our youth leadership board has really shaped not only the strategy and how we reach people through digital media, but also the content. Uh, and they've come up with terms and words and 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 branding and you know, looks and feels and 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 strategies that I would not have thought of, both because of their demographic, just being in a different generation than I am, as well as their rich experience um, that they can bring to the table. So those two things, like building a a set of a a team around me who could inform the work in various ways that I could not, I I definitely wouldn't be here today still still doing this if if that were not the case. And then, you know, I think (laughs) there's definitely been just some perseverance and grit involved in maintaining and continuing, even through a period where the fundraising wasn't as clear, you know, where it was going to come from. 
um, you really, I really had to sort of stick with it and continue to build those relationships. Ultimately, I, I did end up bringing the nonprofit under a larger nonprofit and becoming a fiscally sponsored project of a larger nonprofit that I mentioned earlier called One Mind, and that was that's a was a function of of a longstanding relationship. It's an organization that I have admired on the sort of national scale, really funding research for the most part in brain health of, of all of all kinds. But it was founded by uh, someone who lives with schizophrenia. And so his name's Brandon Staglin. He now uh, is the president and runs that organization. Uh, and for years, I, I've, I've known him for probably eight-ish years. Um, he and I have really seen eye to eye on the need for this, the gaps and the opportunities. And so it was a really natural collaboration when I said, hey, I love doing the programmatic work. I, I'm a creative. I love building. I tend to be a bigger picture thinker. I love putting the strategy together and imagining how this is all going to work and scaling it. But there are certain operational aspects of running a nonprofit that I need to extract myself from. And that means I either need to hire someone very quickly or I need to reorganize and have another nonprofit really serve as my back office, if you will. And that's what we ended up doing was the latter, becoming becoming a fiscally sponsored proje- uh, project of One Mind. Um, they more recently have been a very significant funder of, of our work, which is phenomenal. Um, so we've just grown our partnership over the last several years, and it's been fairly organic. But yeah, it's 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 been such a great education for me, um, jumping as, in as a founder and having to be somewhat flexible with what it was going to look like. Uh, but the key, and I, I think the thing, the North Star for me, what I kind of kept in mind was, what do I want my kind of career and day-to-day to look like? What's my value add? What What do I want my place in this work to look like? And when I have been very honest with myself about that, I feel like the work and the, the partnerships, the funding, like everything seems to come together. So that's what I'll, I'll continue to do from here. Yeah, that's, wow. It's what a great mission. And I, I, it's really fascinating what you're doing. And the world of nonprofits is interesting to me because I don't understand it. <laughs> so that's a lot of what a lot of these questions are. If somebody's listening to this and they understand nonprofits, they're probably, probably bored by now. But I'm really fascinated <laughs> to understand how this works. Um, yeah. And I'm, I think it's amazing what you're doing. Thank you. And I know it takes a lot of grit and a lot of hard work and time. And, mm-hmm. and I, I was curious, how do you find time for some of the other things that I know you're, you're into, such as, you know, teaching yoga and mindfulness and underserved communities? You know, how do you, how do you make time for that? And then I want to dig into how you do that. And cause I, I want to see if that's something that can be and should be and will be replicated in, in other cities. Cause I, I think that, I think it could be really helpful to a lot of people. Yeah. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, yoga for me um, and mindfulness practices, these are things like many people, you know, I discovered by uh, the function of sort of needing to take care of myself, needing to reduce stress and anxiety and, you know, simply found that, wow, I feel better. I feel better when I have a regular practice. I feel better when I can slow down and take things in. The somatic experience of movement for me and from my body. And I don't, I don't think this is true of everyone. And I think also movement that can be therapeutic for people is different for other people. There are people who run marathons. I'm not a marathon runner, you know, but I, I have friends who do ultra marathons and like that to them is their self-care. This is how they're processing and, and managing their mental health as well. So I think it's a little different for everybody. For me, there's something about mindful movement 
And uh, that, that for me, it's a meditation. Yoga has, has become over time a real meditation and a way for me to access how I feel, a real deep checking in and a release around whatever it is that needs to be released on that given day. And so I got really curious about why, what is this? What, how is this possible? Um, and that's what led me to take a yoga teacher training. <laughs> Your question about time, I, that wasn't easy. It was also done you know, during a time where I had just taken that sabbatical and was just coming back and, and starting a consulting practice. So it was a little bit easier when my time was my own. Um, prior to that, I was really owned by, you know, iShares, BlackRock, other asset managers I had worked for. I mean, it was my time was not my own for a long time. But when I came back and started my own business, consulting practice in, in marketing and strategy work, um, and was starting the and was starting th- Strong 365, I could integrate more of these practices and dedicate more time to things that were really helpful to me. Uh, and that's why I've also kind of stuck with this kind of career that that allows for me to continue to dedicate time um, both to myself and to others. It, it's become really, really important to me in a way that I manage my own health and well-being and, and that of my family. I know that that's not always possible for, for people. And I have so much compassion for those who are you know, maybe, quote unquote, stuck in a, in a situation where they feel burned out and, and their time doesn't feel like their own. Um I do a lot of mentoring still to, you know, people in, in the corporate space as well. And um, that's one of my biggest things is like, could you take five minutes? You know, could you have a breath practice in the middle of the day? Like, what would that look like? Um, because I've just, I found these things to be so incredibly um, helpful to, to myself um, that, that I know, I know they can be helpful to, to the masses as well. So I don't know if that really answered the question, but I, it's not easy. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, I just, you know, do a little of this, a little of that. I, I sort of live and die by my calendar. I create blocks of time for pretty much everything that I'm doing. Um, it takes a lot of discipline to be able to do a range of things, including my family, I will say. Uh, you know, I do, I do take care of two girls who are nine and 12, um, not without help, but, you know, I do. And so it just... For me, it's finding that balance and the balance changes pretty much week in and week out and kind of rolling with that, you know, is, is an art and a practice. But I, I do think that mindfulness for me is, has been uh, really a, a door open to um, feeling, you know, that I'm more in touch with who I really am and therefore can do the things that I want to see come to life in the world. And so remind me, uh, when when and where do you do these yoga and mindfulness sessions for these uh, underserved communities? Yes. So I had been, I'm not right at this moment, but I have been uh, teaching uh, in San Francisco uh, at a, one was at a, a family, uh, they call it a family development center, but part of a nonprofit that offers a range of social services to people living in poverty. In this case, it was a center for women and uh, also teen mothers. And so I taught there for some time, which was so incredibly rewarding to see multiple generations of women in the room um, together, these teens, their mothers, sometimes their babies alongside the teens. Um, so that was really beautiful. It also really pressed me to brush up on my Spanish, which was really helpful and needed. Uh, and I had never really applied to, to yoga practice. So 
Um, that was cool. And then also uh, an organization um, also in, in San Francisco that ser- serves as sort of temporary housing for people who are in transition from homelessness. And that was a such a cool and moving experience. You know, we were dealing with people who, for example, because of intense shame um, of having lived on the streets for, for quite quite some time, these are people who had been chronically homeless for, for oftentimes more than a decade. Um, they would not take off their shoes um, because there's so much shame around what their feet looked like. And that that's just one of, of many kind of learnings that I had, you know, coming into a situation that is an experience that just thankfully pretty far from my own, but that I was really there to hold space for uh, no matter what the sort of the, the group needed or, or, or cared to, you know, in whatever way they cared to participate. And so it was like shoes on yoga, primarily sitting in chairs, um, a real lack of, of being able to uh, be mobile. We had folks in wheelchairs. Um, and so there's a lot of creativity there. Um, but I, I found it to be just such an incredibly humble, humbling experience to work with, with people with such a wide range of, of experience in the world. So yeah, I, I, I really, I'm, actively looking uh, for some new opportunities to, to continue that that type of work in my community now. Is this something that's going on broadly in, in communities? Do you think it's going on in other cities? Is this something that could be uh, done in other cities that should be done? I Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for all the reasons I, I stated that, that yoga and mindfulness have been um, just inc- powerful practices for me. I mean, I think it is it is really unfortunate that that there isn't something more you know, pervasive or, or you know that isn't well scaled across other other communities. I taught out of uh, some volunteering that I was doing through the yoga studio that I taught with, as well as another organization that I served on the board for, and learned that there was this gap with these young women and their mothers and their babies, you know, who who needed they needed this. And so for me, it was like this kind of fairly random set of needs that came my way. It shouldn't be that way. I I completely agree with you that, that more needs to be done. Got it. Yeah. There's this, this is totally changing gears, but it just crossed my mind. I remembered I was looking at your website and there's this quote on the website that says that I'm thankful for my struggle because without it, I wouldn't have stumbled upon my strength. And I really love that quote. And I feel like that that speaks to a lot of my experience over the last couple of years and in, in recovery myself. And yeah, I'm, I'm really just grateful for what you guys are doing. I'm grateful for your mission. I'm grateful that you share that, that quote. I'm grateful that you share that philosophy. And I'm just really, really glad that you guys are out doing what you're doing. Uh, it's not even really a question. It's more just as I've listened to you talk about it, I've just, I'm just so overwhelmed and grateful that you're doing what you're doing. Thank you, Stephen. And same goes to you. I mean, this is really exciting what you're doing with a dedicated, um, you know, venture capital opportunity for for new ways of thinking about mental health care that is so needed. So thank you as well. And I, I appreciate you, you know, facilitating this discussion and learning more about Strong 365 and psychosis and the gaps and opportunities that exist. Is there anything that I missed? I know we're kind of running uh, to the end of our time here, but is there anything I missed about Strong 365 that we should let people know? Um, no, just, you know, feel 
free, please do. I'm sure you'll say this, but, um, you know, to visit the website, strong365.org, we are definitely inviting people all the time to, to share their, their stories on the blog as well. And, uh, no, I, I think you've really covered it. So thank, thank you so much. Well, thank you for being here and thank you for, for taking time to talk and to share. Um, I think that a lot of our listeners will, will enjoy knowing what you're doing, whether they're Bay Area focused or, or Bay Area located or not. So thank you very much for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you. So thank you again for being here, Chantel. And I, I want to also mention that I, I didn't get it in while I had Chantel on the line, but I did ask later and she, the, the chicken, the five chickens are not, they are pets. They're not, uh, they, they do not have any threat. They're not in any danger. So for those of you who were concerned, I did clarify that. Um, so yeah, I was just really gr- glad to have her on. I, I learned a lot from that conversation. I hope you did too. Um, Really grateful to have our listeners here. We'd love to hear from you. You can connect with us on our website, stigmapodcast.com. You can connect with us on Twitter, at StigmaCast. And we always want to hear from you. We would love to hear your questions or thoughts about the episode. And as always, we'd love to have feedback from you, about ratings, reviews on podcast platforms, etc. So thank you for being here, and we will be connecting with you soon.